welcome to Represent the Podcast, the show where I, Katie Beth McKinney, sit down with composers from historically marginalized and underrepresented backgrounds and discuss their works for the horn. Hope you enjoy and thanks for tuning in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Represent the Podcast, where we discuss uh, works for horn written by diverse composers. Today, I have with me Gary Kuo, who is an Emmy-winning uh, composer and violinist who's currently based out of the Los Angeles area. Uh, thank you for being here today, Gary. I'm so excited to have you. Hey, Katie Beth. It's nice to be here as well. Oh, thank you so much. I hope it's sunny out in LA. It's a little humid here, but I don't know about you. <laughs> yeah, the weather is really nice. So we had rain earlier in the week, and that's always a treat. But uh, yeah, right. it's really nice today. Meanwhile, it rains here and we go, oh, yeah, it's two o'clock. It's time for the daily shower. <laughs> That's kind of That's how it right. works around here. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, fun fact about Gary, he went to the Frost School of Music for one of his degrees, which I also attended. So we have this cool little alumni uh, bond here, which I'm really excited about. So he knows the Miami life, <laughs> which is a lot of fun. Um, so, Gary, what, how did you start in music and in composition? And those can be two completely different answers if you'd like to, to get both. Well, I started violin in the public school system when I was eight years old. And so by the time that I got to high school, I had already developed a, a very strong education, uh, received a very strong education in, in music and had learned how to read. But I had lots of other interests as well. And one of those things was technology. Um, while I was playing violin and uh, studying with my teacher, I was also working on projects like uh, building a little electronic um, projects. And I started building my own electric violin, which was uh, a, something that I hadn't expected to work. But by the time I got to graduate school, you know, I had the sound perfected. And during those years in high school, I would experiment uh, listening to different styles of music and starting to teach myself how to compose. I hadn't studied formally, but I started putting some things together and listening to recordings and analyzing how songs were put together. And so I just started to experiment, but hadn't developed a full, a full interest in composing until I got to Juilliard. Um, during my undergraduate years in New York, I would occasionally watch, of all programs, Sesame Street. And there was one episode of Sesame Street where Herbie Hancock was demonstrating sampling technology. And it was fascinating to me. I'd never seen it happen before. No kidding, and on Sesame Street. On Sesame Street. If you wow. go to YouTube, you can find the you can find the footage, but he's working with a couple of kids and he's de demonstrating the, the Fairlight um, a computer instrument. And I just thought to myself, this is the future. This is really what I would love to do. Um, so I started combining my interest in technology along with in music. And eventually after finishing my undergraduate uh, work, decided to major in, um, to get a master's in composition at UM. And that started everything going. That's amazing. 
So um, now you've composed several pieces for horn, um, one of which I believe you have a big premiere coming up, right? Or it's maybe not a premiere, but a big performance coming up, um, a piece for horn and concert band. Am I Yeah, I have that? a work called yes. um, Wingspan, which is for uh, mm -hmm. horn and concert band. And that was premiered by Jeff Nelson at IHS mm -hmm. 47 back in 2015. Mm -hmm. um, and over the years, it's been receiving performances regularly. And occasionally, someone from another country will, will purchase. And I'll ask them, well, how did you find this piece? And they said, oh, well, we saw it online. Mm -hmm. And so next week, it'll receive its premiere in Austria, which is really that's exciting. Yes, that's so exciting in Austria. It is. So cool. Oh it gives gosh. me a chance to uh, to use Google Google Translate and uh, to, <laughs> to try to communicate, <laughs> right? <laughs> in my limited German skills. <laughs> what I found about German is if you just tack on another word, you've probably made up your own word, and they'll use it. So that's, that's right. It's <laughs> always handy. <laughs> So I'm curious, what drew you to compose for horn? I mean, you're, like I said, you're a violinist. So that's, you know, a slightly different instrumental family than we would expect. Well, when I listen to music, um, I always noticed how great horns sound playing melodies, especially since they're such a strong featured instrument in motion picture scores. Um, I played on a number of scores uh, when I first moved to Los Angeles, about a hundred. And I would sit there and watch Jim Thatcher with the section and just be immersed in that sound. And it just, it always in the back of my mind was something that I, that created a very strong impression. Um, mm -hmm. But one of my friends, uh, Mike Harcrow, was also a student at UM. We were both mm -hmm. there at the same time. And over the years, we stayed in touch. And then one year, he said, would you be interested in writing something for my, my students? And I said, sure, what's the instrumentation? And he said, oh, it's for my studio, it's just horns. And I, at the time, didn't realize that horn choirs were a thing. Um, mm -hmm. And I discovered it was a, it was a fantastic thing. Uh, after doing a little bit of research, I thought, oh, this is, this is going to be great. And so he premiered a work of mine called Mountain Spires uh, at IHS 45. And that got the ball rolling because even though it was my first uh, work for Horn, a number of college professors reached out and wanted to purchase it and have their students perform it. And one of the people who reached out to me was Jeff Nelson. Um, and Jeff Nelson, as you know, plays with Canadian brass. And mm -hmm. we too stayed in touch. And by the time IHS 47 came about, he said, if you write something for the event, I'll play it. He was president of the, uh, of the Horn Society at the time. Mm -hmm. And so that's when Wingspan came about. And these two pieces in my very limited catalog of, <laughs> of horn music, <laughs> just introduced me to this wonderful world of wind bands. And mm -hmm. I started meeting fantastic musicians all over the world. Um, and it's been just a lot of fun. And it's a contrast to my work for television because this way I actually get to interact with 
the audience, with the musicians, with those that hear it. Um, and it's a it's just a lot of fun, but it's a very different thing. So I enjoy these both aspects of what I do. Right. And I'm going to shameless plug here. I believe you've won six Emmys for your work in television. Is that right? Yeah. How, how about that? Yeah. <laughs> that's incredible. I mean, that's just absolutely amazing. <laughs> just not to win one, but a full six of them is just something special. <laughs> so we're, we're very lucky that we have a composer of your caliber writing for our instrument. And um, I think you do such a beautiful job of writing really gorgeous melodies. Um, it's a really common problem I found in... Um, it's not a problem. Problem's the wrong word. A common theme I've found in, in people who write for Harness, we get a lot of really forest-based, you know, pieces, which makes a lot of sense. We're a hunting horn, forest horn, blah, blah, blah. But um, what I really like about your music is it it's, feels like it moves beyond limiting us to that realm. Does that make any sense? I mean, you've got this, this piece, Wingspan, and, and Rising, and it's, 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 it's very expansive, and I really enjoy that about your music. Oh, well, thanks. Um, so... Oh, of course. Um, do you find that it's difficult to kind of break out of any boxes writing for the horn or any difficulties at all uh, writing for this instrument? Well, I think things would be easier if I actually played horn myself, because <laughs> then I would know all the nuances and subtleties uh, of, of the mechanics and, and what it feels. But what I generally do is I just do a lot of listening. Um, I listen to amateur groups, I listen to the pros, I listen to the stars, and the same work will sound different depending on who performs it, uh, obviously. Uh, that's due to their uh, technical abilities, to their interpretation, mm -hmm. to the environment, to the ensemble. And I think that serves me well because what I hear are the nuances and the differences. And, and I think, oh, well, this artist enjoyed playing this part of the piece. It seems like that sat well better with them. As, and this mm -hmm. artist played this part of the piece uh, slightly different. Um, and I started to hear the differences between low horn and high horn. Uh, mm -hmm. And prior to writing for Horn, I didn't even know, know that that was an issue. Um, mm -hmm. So there are lots of things that I'm picking up that I try to do to the best of my ability without consulting a horn player all the time. Right. I, I'm curious, who, if you don't mind sharing, who did you listen to and what pieces when you were doing these uh, investigations? Well, I guess there are so many to, there, there's so many to, to mention, but uh, Sarah Willis and Jeff Nelson. Uh, but also I would listen to a lot of student recitals, uh, whatever mm -hmm. I could find. And what I enjoy about hearing students play is because they're relatively new to, depending on their skill, uh, because they're learning the repertoire, um, they're bringing in something really fresh. Uh, and it may even be the limitations of their performance, but that teaches me a lot about the instrument and a lot about what it is to play, play that particular instrument. I really like that. I wouldn't have thought to go and listen to student recitals. I know when I go, when I want to learn a new piece, I usually look for a professional recording of it. And I think I'm going to steal that. Um, I think that's really wonderful. And I happen to know a lot of current students who play at a professional level at various schools that I 
have become acquainted with. So I'm, I'm absolutely going to steal that technique. That's going to be something new from now on. That is so well, it's, great. well, it's interesting because if you have amazing musicians, um, from the perspective of a composer, obviously that's a treat. It's such a thrill, but it can also disguise weak writing. Mm-hmm. Because a strong player can nail everything that you've written. And you may have written something that's not ideal. It may not uh, be practical. It may not even be musical, but a professional, you know, a, a star can and nail it and just make anything sound good. Um, but what I try to get from hearing my performances is the accuracy of my writing. Um, if if you play the if you play the ink, I will be able to hear with more accuracy what's strong and what's weak about my work. Um, so that's what I appreciate. Do you find that it's challenging to, this is something that I've talked to several composers about now, um, to kind of harness the different colors of tone in the ranges of the horn. I know that some people have really specific concept of tone quality they want, and sometimes they don't always get it out of the different extremes well as a result of listening to a lot of different players i think i've come to recognize what i want from the instrument um and if i listen to enough literature i'll think well i know that the instrument has a great deal of strength in this section in this area uh playing these types of passages playing these types of phrases and i'll keep that in mind when i'm composing my work uh beyond that i think it's just however the artist wants to interpret the piece kind of in my experience i feel like there's kind of two types of composer there's the one who wants you to play exactly the ink on the very stravinsky is what i think they wants exactly the ink on the page and they wrote out every little detail and you have to do it exactly that and there are the ones who want the personal interpretation and want to hear what each player brings to the table. Is that kind of more where you th- say what you would fall into? Yeah, I mean, unless I write ad lib, uh, mm-hmm. I want musicians to play what I wrote because mm-hmm. um, at least for me, I'm just speaking for myself, the process of bringing a work to realization, to, to reality is a lot of work. Uh, I will often agonize over where, which note will be, you know, use where it will be placed, uh, what articulation, how it's notated, uh, the dynamic, all of these things I will agonize over for days before putting it down. And then even after that, I'll go back and revise things. So my first goal is play the ink because then I'll have an accurate representation of what I wrote. Um, And then I'll know if I want to fix it or not. And the thing about wingspan is it's actually gone through a couple of subtle revisions because Mm -hmm. what I've discovered was depending on the performer and the venue and the, the sound reinforcement, it can completely change how the piece is balanced. So over the years, I've made these very minor tweaks, and each one seems like a monument, monumental event for me because 
I think, oh, geez, if I if I, if we had only brought down the mic mic a level a little bit, or um, if uh, if the acoustics in the hall were a little bit better. So I'm listening to I'm agonizing <laughs> I'm agonizing <laughs> over all of these details, um, mm-hmm. but I appreciate it when people play what I wrote first. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And if I want there to be uh, a unique interpretation, I'll generally notate it. Um, in fact, Jeff mm-hmm. Nelson and I, when we were talking about the piece, he had his uh, suggestions, but he asked me first. Um, so, so it wasn't as if he thought, well, I'm just going to do whatever I want. Um, I think I think that's a nice uh, tip of the hat uh, to the composer, where where you mm-hmm. say, "Well, I, I want to re- accurate, accurately represent what you wrote, but what do you think about doing this?" And that type of collaboration is really what makes working with other musicians fun. Well, that segues perfectly into one of the topics that I want to talk about because I love the idea of this podcast being. Uh, a resource for young composers and young performers um, as they move forward in their own, you know, process of commissioning each other. Um, and so, what, what would you say you have a big piece of advice about that relationship? Because it sounds like that, you know, having some kind of um, rapport with the performer you're writing for is is pretty important. I think it's important for every one of us to know what role we play and what roles others play. Um, when I was a violinist, I would sit in the section and my first goal was to learn my own part, but it wasn't until after becoming a composer that I realized that the violins were just one component. You know, when I was in grade school, I was very competitive and I wanted to sit concert master and, and that was the priority. And that goes against uh, all violent stereotypes I've ever yeah, heard. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, the literature, right? It's it's the literature and then it's the competitions. And so you're sort of placed in that frame of mind. And then, but then when I became a composer, it was like, oh no, this is one color within the painting. And what I've noticed is that my appreciation of music has increased exponentially after becoming a composer because I saw the the bigger picture. Um, I mean, I was always fascinated by instruments, uh, mechanically speaking, um, when I was younger. So I was already sort of walking down that path. But uh, my recommendation is to understand the challenges of what different instruments, what, what different musicians have, whether you're a singer or an instrumentalist. And <clears throat> also for the performers to understand the challenges or the experience of being a composer, which is why I actually encourage everyone to learn something about composing, because then you have the 30,000 foot view of what the entire piece is about. Um, And when you've got these long rests, uh, you understand that, oh, we're not playing anything now, but when we do come in, it means it's special. Mm-hmm. 
right? Oh, I like that a lot. Yeah, it gives you that moment to shine. It's, it's not a matter of the composer doesn't want me to play here. It's he's saving me for this moment. That's right. Yeah. It's right. Mm -hmm. It's like when there's going to be a conversation between these two sections and these two characters, but then when you bring in the brass, there's meaning behind that entrance. Mm -hmm. So enjoy the time that you're not playing because then you'll get to walk in and make your, make your entrance. Well, as horn players, we're always trying to save our chops anyway. So maybe we're glad for those 42 bars of rest. Sure. Know? Yeah. <laughs> and that's a whole well, other conversation. Like those moments. Oh, yeah. absolutely. That's a whole other podcast is talking about endurance. <laughs> I won't even get into that. So how do you find you typically get connected with um, somebody who wants to commission your music? You know, what's fun about uh, the internet is the fact that to me, at least, it's sort of like a big industry mixer. Um, we're all sort of in, at least in my mind, we're all sort of in this world of music. And I've been able to connect to people, not unlike the way you and I connected, mm -hmm. uh, in the same way that I would meet someone if we were at a convention. Um, if you and I were at a at the, the next um, IHS, and I saw you wearing a University of Miami shirt, I would just walk up to you and say, hey, I went there too. Um, and I take that approach when I'm online. Um, I often just reach out to people randomly without any specific purpose, but just to say hi and, and shake their hand virtually and sort of move on. And I've, I've enjoyed what's happened as a result of that. Um, people will ask me about what I do, and oftentimes over a month or a period of years or uh, no specific timeline, things will match up and people will say, well, not unlike my collaboration with Mike, he'll say, well, I've been listening to your music for years, and I think you write really well for Horn. Would you like to do something for my students? Um, and that's how I've been able to stay busy all all of these uh, all of these years. Just mm -hmm. a result of people knowing what I do and meeting me either online or in person. Mm -hmm. oh, that's really really wonderful. I I really like that idea of using the internet for good to that purpose. I know we can all get bogged down and some of the negative aspects of it. You know, all of us get glued to our phones and whatnot. But the idea of actually you know really having meaningful interaction virtually, especially in this pandemic-y, COVID-y area that we're in, right. um, you know, it's, it's critical. It's absolutely critical. And it's a whole social skill set that we didn't all learn maybe, you know, prior to now, if that makes any sense. Like, it's like an etiquette, you know. Yeah, the, the rules are still being written with mm -hmm. regards to what's happening now. But I'm so glad that you reached out because for me, this is really the best part of being a composer. I mean, if you and I hadn't connected over the instrument that you, pl that you play and the, mm -hmm. the groups that we're involved in, I don't know that you and I would have ever had a chance to chat. Um, and that's- No, probably not. And it's, and it's funny because we have a lot of these connections. I mean, I went to Indiana, so I know Jeff um, fairly well. You know, we um, I took a couple lessons with him while I was there. Um, I know Mike because I write for the newsletter for the International Horn Society. So he and I connected that way. Right. Um, and then, you know, my um, teacher from UM, uh, Richard Todd, because you guys overlapped in the 
LA setting, right? Right. It's all these degrees of connections, but would we have ever spoken? I'm not so sure. So it's, it's right. incredible. Yeah. It's a lot yeah. of fun. Um, and the technology makes it really convenient. So I've mm-hmm. enjoyed, uh, a lot of this and, and, but you're right. You have to sort of monitor your use of it. I, I spend way too much time watching restoration videos. So. <laughs> there are worse things. I spend a lot of time on cat videos. Oh my gosh. The number of times I'm like, put down the phone. You know, having a practice focus mode on that device is very right. handy. <laughs> oh, it's great. <laughs> so, okay, here's another question. Once you've gotten the piece written, um, maybe you've had the, the premiere done, is there a process to get it repeat performance? Um, I imagine that's maybe harder than even getting the premiere going, having it performed again and again. You know, I'm sure every composer has a different response to this question. I basically just try to share my work when I think it's appropriate. Mm-hmm. One, one, of the, one of my favorite events when I was in grade school was show and tell. Um, going into kindergarten, bringing something in and and telling people about what it is and then trying to find the adjectives as a as a five-year-old but (laughs) um but again keeping that uh conversation mindset if i come across a conversation that i see where people are chatting about something i'll and i feel like i have something to offer uh i'll say oh this is my experience or this piece is available um and here's a link to it if you'd like to listen um i very rarely approach people without some kind of connective topic uh so i don't i don't spam people but i will reach out and say oh i saw your post um you were looking for this or I believe you and I connected this way too, where you were talking mm-hmm. about um, concert works at, for horn written by uh, people of color and other minorities. And, and I thought, I don't know if this is what you're looking for, but I fall into these categories. I'm Asian American and I've written this horn piece. So if this helps your project, then you're welcome to share it. And mm-hmm. that's pretty much what I do. Which I was thrilled about. I mean, I immediately added you to my database and I was like so excited to make that connection with you. Um, and I've been enjoying your music ever since. So I'm so glad you did reach out. It's, it's oh, proof. The, the proof is in the pudding because I've got you on the pod here. I was like, yes, we've got to we've talk to you. So that's so great. So it sounds like it's, it's really about just looking for the opportunity for meaningful connection. Again, is, is that same, you know, moment in time where you're like, this is what you're looking for. Yeah, um, I don't want to push things because... I know what it's like to be on the other side. If you're stuck by the side of the road, you really need someone with the wrench to help you change your tire. You don't Mm -hmm. need food necessarily. You don't need clothing. (laughs) You don't need a subscription to a magazine. You you're looking for something very specific at that time. And so Mm -hmm. that's when I'll offer to share my work. Yeah, that's great. I think that might be something that a lot of, um, well, a lot of us musicians are struggling with these days is finding that line of self-promotion um, because that is right. part of our job is to to push ourselves forward. But how do you do that appropriately without being, you know, too much, but also not enough. And that's, it's a very fine line to walk. 
Um, yeah, it is. It's a challenge. I'll I'll ask my friends to to tell me when they think I've gone too far, um, mm-hmm. because that may depend on their perception and and whatever. Um, and hopefully, you have perspe- honest friends will tell you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I've been delighted to find out that um, that no one said anything, and and in fact, have appreciated my contributions so, uh, or, or my comments. So I'm happy about that. And to circle way back to the composition process, because I know that yes. every composer is completely different um, in how they go about this. Um, where do you start? Are you the kind of person who has a melody in your head and you put it on the manuscript paper or do you fiddle around on a piano or finale or? Well, again, just speaking for myself, uh, composing for me is a challenge because I don't always have a great deal of ideas in my head. Um, so what I try to do is think of my, you know, our brains are computers, right? You have your input and you have your output. And so in terms of input, I'll try to stimulate the creative process in any way I can. And that can happen as a result of playing a physical instrument, you know, picking up my violin and, and feeling the mechanics uh, playing the piano, uh, listening to music, or sometimes just working with pencil and paper, uh, mm-hmm. having, trying to compose without any tools at all, you know, just in your, uh, in your mind. And each one of these techniques stimulates a different part of your, your brain and your process. And I try to use them all because if you at least if I use just one technique, you tend to repeat the process and I'll, I'll tend to produce the same type of thing. Um, when I'm at the keyboard, my hands will naturally want to fall in a certain position and do certain things. So that's when I pick up um, the violin. And because physically it's just very different. Um, or I find when I'm in the piano, I always end up making things that sound like Lord of the Rings. That's just inevitably oh, where my well, hands go well, <laughs> well lucky you <laughs> I can't explain it oh i mean this is just me copying howard shore's melodies you know but that's where they wind up you <laughs> know go figure that's great that's great so i'll if i and if i come up with something good i'll put it down i'll just i'll just make a note of it um sometimes it involves even singing into the phone and making a note of that and at some point, I'll just go over all of these ideas and, and say, well, I think this works and this is worth keeping. And I'll, I'll just kind of delete the ideas that I don't think are, are strong. And it's from that pool of ideas that I'll reach uh, when I work on something. So it's really about activating the different parts of your brain. You know, this is- For me, it is. Yeah, mm-hmm. for me, it is. Um, if I were really brilliant, I would just sit down and produce like <laughs> the genius that I would want to be. Oh, uh, don't even get me started. I will go on a rant about the concept of genius. I have so many <laughs> thoughts, so I won't do that now because that's a whole other podcast too. So, <laughs> um, so where do you find inspiration from these little things? Do, do, are they things you see out in the world or just pop to you know while you're sleeping? I mean... Well, occasionally, um, I, I've taught I've taught composition in the past to college students, and I have a weekly assignment for all of my students, and that is every week uh, go out and find a new piece of music in a different style 
that you've never heard. Mm. But find something that you actually like. And it could be anything. And then when I meet with them the following week, we'll talk about what it is about that piece that they like. And I think it's important because if you're not enjoying the process of listening to music, it, it makes what we do even more difficult. So mm-hmm. I, I always try to make sure that I'm enjoying whatever I'm doing, whether it's writing or listening or studying. It's something that initially has to start with interest and mm-hmm. captivating my passion for it. Do you ever challenge them to go find genres that maybe, and it, well, I guess that's the first question is, are, are these genres outside of clap, or, um, classical, capital C, classical music? Or is it, you know, do they enter pop, country, rap, whatever? Or is it just, you know, don't go listen to more violin, go listen to piano or something? Well, it depends on, it depends on the student. Um, different students have different ex, uh, experiences musically growing up and they have different gaps in their knowledge as we all do. Mm-hmm. But if I'm working with someone who's relatively new to classical music, um, I will approach things from the kind of music that they know well. So I had a student a number of years ago who really didn't know much about classical music, but he really liked heavy metal. And he was embarrassed to share that with me, which I, <laughs> which I try, I, I discouraged him. I, I was like, don't, don't be shy about sharing what you really like. I'm not here to criticize your taste or anything. I really want to know what you like. And he, and he said, he really liked heavy metal. And I said, okay, well, let's, let's listen to a group that you want to introduce me to. And again, he's very embarrassed about this. And I said, no, this is, this is great because I'm learning about this too. And he played this piece and I said, okay, now I want you to sing the guitar part. I want you to sing the rhythm that the guitar is playing. And it challenged him because he had consumed it before, but he hadn't really studied it. So I said, okay, now listen to what the bass player is doing. And he had to struggle because again, you're not just eating the cookie, you're now tasting it and finding out what the, what chips are being used. Are there macadamia nuts? Are there, you know, is it just chocolate chip and batter? I mean, it's, it's now it's, now we're studying. And I said, well, if you listen to this, this is actually not unlike Bach two-part inventions. And, and it blew his mind because I said, I'm, I'm stretching this a bit. I mean, but for the sake of trying to introduce you to, to a different style of music, listen to the two voices that are in this piece that's a lot older, but it's still only two voices. Your heavy metal piece also has two voices. It's just that the timbre is very different. But if you listen to it from the perspective of a composer, this is two-part writing. This is working with two voices. And I think that was a fun day for both of us. Well, at least that I'd like to next... think so. <laughs> right. <laughs> that was going to be my next question was, has that ever expanded your taste in music, having to work with your students on things you might not have been exposed to before? Yeah, I like, I like 
when my students share with me the things that they like, because there's a lot of stuff out there and it's impossible for any of us to keep up with all of it. There's a lot of, I mean, that's the great thing about the internet. You can, you can look for any style of music that you want. And within a few clicks, you can find, I would think something that would interest you. And Mm -hmm. we've never had that uh, before. So that's Mm -hmm. another thing that I would encourage uh, really all musicians to do is just listen to as much stuff as you can it 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 all goes into your brain and all mixes in there and it's all it's all great yeah for the young listeners um we used to have to go in person to buy music we couldn't just open up spotify or youtube or apple music you know i um we had a store in my hometown called hastings and it replaced the blockbuster that used to be there and uh-huh. we would go and buy cds on sale and i remember i that was actually a very formative part of my upbringing was i found I believe it was um, a Handel's Water Music. And I fell in love with the horn from that CD that I got at Hastings in the $2 sale bin, you know? And, and Fantastic. Here we are, you know? So you never know where you're going to find these little tidbits. And that was the beauty of rifling through these physical copies. Um, but now we can just hit shuffle, which is its own other beautiful element. So <laughs> Yeah, you know, the, that experience of, of going to buy... And, and listen to music, I think was special because it slowed the process down. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, you can click through so many things. And while it's convenient, it doesn't foster that process of letting something new soak in. Uh, we just kind of superficially come across something and, and then move on to the next thing. But I think there's something that's lost uh, now that we, that now that there's no need for that process. Um, but that's just my, my personal opinion. <laughs> yes. Well, that's the beauty of this is this <laughs> is your personal opinion. And that's, I think needs to be shared more because people really get bogged down in the concept of how we do things now. And I think there's some times where we don't listen to how things used to be. And when we can incorporate both of them and, and pull the best parts of each, that's when we're going to really succeed in expanding yeah. everyone's horizons here yeah so, i agree yeah i, I think agree. that's great as far as your music goes how would you characterize your compositional language if you have one that you'd like to you know <laughs> share i would say if i were to place it in a couple of categories i would say melodic and relatively accessible from a technical mm-hmm. perspective um one of the things that i didn't enjoy about playing violin was having these works of literature that in many cases were far too technically demanding for me to play. I I love, I love the music, but I just thought to myself, there is no way I'm going to be able to enjoy performing this piece. Um, And as a result, I didn't develop a very strong passion for becoming a soloist. Um, And again, I'm just sharing my experience. (laughs) Uh, So I keep that in mind when I'm writing. I want to write something that's expressive and communicates the message that I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. But I really don't want musicians to look at that and say, oh, I'm going to dread learning this thing. Um, Mm. 
that's really important to me because I've sat in that seat. I know what it's like. Um, mm -hmm. Now, obviously, you can't please everyone, and and it's not really practical or or advantageous to to want to do that. But I'm very aware when I'm writing parts that there is a human being behind that phrase or that part or that note. Someone actually has to look at it and try to realize it on their instrument. So that's one thing that's really important to me. Yeah, I have very vivid memories of putting something on my stand and going, how the heck am I going to figure this out? And is it worth my time? You know, and, and sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, you know, sometimes it's me needing to grow as a musician. Sometimes it's just, this piece is fiendishly difficult. So having something that strikes that balance is handy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not, and, and I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not telling other people what to do. Um, I'm just think I'm just sharing my process and no, of course also and also i want to write something that i think is fun to listen to because by the time that i'm done with it mm -hmm. i've already heard 2000 versions of it while writing it you know and so mm -hmm. hopefully by that stage by the the last stages i will have cut out the portions that I think are not quite as interesting or as expressive or uh -huh. whatever. But I try to write stuff that I would want to listen to myself. And you mentioned that you've done revisions on pieces like Wingspan. Is it hard to, like, once you feel like you've closed the composition, you're like, okay, it's out in the world. Is it hard to open it back up and go, mm, maybe I should tweak this? Or is that too easy of a temptation to want to change it? <laughs> uh, that's, I'll answer this in, in from two perspectives. One is sort of your perspective as an artist. Um, as a creative, you always want your best work to be out there. You want something that you feel best represents who you are. Um, I, I think that goes for all of us, whether we're performers or, or painters or any, anyone creative. Um, but there's also the reality of going through and updating everything. Um, and that is kind of a drag <laughs> because, <laughs> because that involves a lot of proofreading and going through files. And at least, like I said, for me, um, this is probably the least uh, desirable process, uh, part of the process for me. I know how I want to change things, but because I'm self-published, I actually have to go through everything and make sure that things are correct and that the program didn't have a little glitch and produce something that I didn't want on the page. Mm -hmm. That happens a lot. Um, and so I would rather not have to do that, but in service for, in service to the artists who are performing my stuff, as well as the piece itself, I'm pretty much going to do whatever I think is going to put the best version of that work out there. Is that helpful being self-published? You have complete control over the, the manuscript, I suppose, at any point. Yeah, that's, well, There, there's two schools of thought. I mean, there's a lot of work involved to make, like I said earlier, there's a lot of work that it takes to bring anything to life. Um, and that work has to be done by someone. 
if you're with a large publisher, they will do all of that work. And there's wonderful things about that because they have resources and connections that you may not. Um, but they may not want to produce or go or reopen those files for the third time. They may say, we like <laughs> it the way it is. We think it's fine. Write, you know, write your next piece. But my being the way that I am, if I have an itch, I want to scratch it. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. That's absolutely valid. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, some, and I'll run these ideas by my friends and I'll say, well, should I write? I, Katie Beth, this is something that actually happens. I will <laughs> agonize over whether or not I should write a hairpin or write dim a... Uh, or, or write some text. Uh, I think mm -hmm. recently I, I had to do that with a new work. Um, one of my, the pianist who played the piece said, uh, um, you should write, um, I forgot what the term was, but it was write a diminuendo in, in, in text, in high, you know, mm -hmm. italics instead. Um, mm -hmm. And I thought, yeah, that's a, that's a better idea. And then you look at how it sits on the paper and you're thinking, well, visually, this is a lot clearer, and, but then this is more preferable. So all of these details are things that I wish I didn't have to do, but <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll do them because they're necessary. <laughs> right. And I'm sure every <laughs> performer has their own opinion of whether they'd like to read diminuendo or read the hairpin. I, you know, that's, that may be one of those things where <laughs> you can never please everyone. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, even looking for looking at page turns, you know, mm -hmm. um, how does this page turn work? Does it how does it look visually? Um, you know, a publisher will take care of all of those things for you. And, and if you have a great relationship with them, then that's fantastic. But um, but I like to self-publish for another reason. And that is it puts me in direct touch with the people who are playing my my music, which, like I said, mm -hmm. is really the fun part. Um, I, I, otherwise I'm not meeting, I, I would never have a chance to meet any of you, you know? So, mm -hmm. so for me, this is really, uh, uh, just the most enjoyable part. Yeah. I think there's, um, I, I really like that idea of, of meeting the performers because I know personally, I've made it a point to try and perform as many works by living composers recently as I can. And I'm always horribly intimidated and that's my own complex but i'm horribly intimidated to reach out to the composer and be hey i'm performing your work that i purchased from you last year you know um and i imagine that i would say probably 98 this is just complete projection but 98 percent of composers would be thrilled to find out someone's performing their piece that they put out in the world yeah i think you're right um i mean i'm really glad that you and i connected uh because it makes what we do very real uh, especially mm -hmm. nowadays where uh we're all isolated and it's really nice when you can make a connection with uh, uh, another person in a different way mm -hmm. over what we all love to do, you know? That might be the theme of this podcast is meaningful connections. I, I really like that. That's going to be my, my thought of the day, I think, on this one. That's so great. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> Um, now to, to completely change gears here, um, sure. what do you think have been the, the greatest challenges of your career, um, both as a performer and a uh, composer? And that's a broad question. 
Uh, just off the top of my head, I think the biggest struggle that we all have as creatives is being satisfied with what we produce. I know that's the case for me. Um, that's not an excuse for not doing the work, but oftentimes I'm, I'm always less than completely satisfied with everything that leads up to completing something. Um, mm -hmm. By the time I release something, it's the best version of what I was able to do at that moment. But there are recordings and compositions of mine that I'll go back to listen to and I think, oh, that's that could have been a lot better. So for mm -hmm. me, it's always been reaching a, a level of satisfaction with whatever I release um, because <laughs> I know I, I know what I, I've listened to out there and considering the, the great performers and composers that are out there, you think, well, I hope this has a place <laughs> <laughs> among the, the wonderful stuff that's out there. And, <laughs> um, you know, that's, that's always in the back of your mind. Do you have a response to yourself when you have that little voice? It's like, oh, that could have been better. You know, do you have anything you say to yourself that's like, it doesn't matter if it could have been better? I don't, I don't something. Like well, that. I'll I'll try to learn from that. I'll say, well, I I know that this was weak, but why was it weaker? Was it um, in terms of the form, the instrumentation, the uh, performance, whatever? Uh, I'll try to take whatever lesson. I learned from listening to that, to that older project and apply it to what I'm working on now and just move forward. Uh, I don't think it's productive to, to reprimand yourself over the growing process. You know, I, I think as creatives, we can get really bogged down in um, tying our identities into our output and saying, you know, I am a horn player. So therefore if I play horn badly, I am bad. You know, it, it would be very easy to fall into that trap. Yeah, well, I mean, especially with uh, with what we're able to expose ourselves to. I mean, we now see. I, I mean, I saw this video the other day of of uh, a, a toddler playing violin, and oh, I'm no. just thinking to myself, <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, you know, that kid's probably under management already. <laughs> You're probably uh, right. <laughs> You know, when I was at when I was at Juilliard, uh, Midori, uh, who is, as you know, just a a legendary violinist, I, I watched her warm up before her lessons, and I think she was—I don't even know how old she was—but she was barely a teenager, oh, and <clears throat> and she was warming up on Paganini caprices, and I <laughs> at that moment That's a warm -up? I was. Yeah, oh, no, no, and not not because she was showing off, but because she's mm -hmm. that brilliant. <clears throat> and right. I thought to my yeah, and, and at that moment, I was like, uh, I don't even really know what I'm doing here. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! You know, we've all been there. We've all been there. I've sat yeah. in audition rooms and gone, "Oh yes, I am not good enough to be here." <laughs> you hear somebody playing some lick, and you're, "Oh yeah, I worked for months on that, and it still doesn't sound that good." Yeah, it was. It was really humbling. Real. I was like, "Oh my gosh!" <laughs> <clears throat> uh, I feel like Paganini is really good at humbling us all. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. 
think you're right. Um, <laughs> so, so now we enter the part that I like to call the heavy portion of the podcast here. I need a little jingle or something that's like, it's heavy. <clears throat> I don't know. But um, do you feel that you've experienced any hardships based on your racial identity? You said you're Asian American. Have you found that that has been influential in your career at all? You know, if it if that has been the case, I'm not aware of it. Um, mm-hmm. I th- I think what's largely holding me back, if that's the term, is simply the fact that I don't write a lot of concert music. I work primarily in television, so I I don't know that I've been. A, I don't, I'm not aware of that. If that's the case, uh, I think because I don't have a lot of concert music, that's the only thing. Um, I've gotten a lot of support and encouragement from all different types of groups to write more mm-hmm. stuff. And I and that's my intention. Um, but like I said, since I work in TV, that's where most of my time is spent. Um, mm-hmm. I'm aware that that may be the case with some artists and that's very regretful. But over the years, what I've discovered is it's probably best to do what we can with the resources and opportunities that we have and simply push forward and just Mm -hmm. produce and learn and grow and meet people and let things sort of fall into place. Mm -hmm. Um, There, we're all individuals. We're individual performers, artists. We have our unique sound and contribution and i'd like to think that eventually we all find our little pockets of the world of music where we belong um so i don't know that i've necessarily been held back as much as I just need to write more and it's my intent to do so. Um, Mm -hmm. If that is the case, I also think it's because people tend to categorize uh, just the way we work as human beings. We tend to categorize people and things and situations because we just don't have the time to, to learn about everything or everyone. So you and I have connected over this, but I'm sure you have lots of other skills and interests that we haven't talked about. It doesn't mean that um, I wouldn't be interested in chatting to you about that. But since we're meeting over music today, it's like, well, oh, Katie Beth is uh, instrumentalist and she's got a podcast and okay, and she's uh, a fellow UM grad. That's pretty much how I'll think of you first. I won't necessarily be aware of your other skills, but that's only because I mm-hmm. don't know about them. Right. right. This is not my my podcast about baking bread, which is my other hobby. You know, like oh, see, <laughs> yeah, that's that's a different one. That's that's the brass baker is the recommended. Oh, title okay. I like that. But anyways, no, I completely agree with you. Um, I've spoken to some other composers who say that they feel um, if they don't write music that ticks off a box, um, you know, like say they're um, a Latin American composer and if they don't write music right. that sounds Latin American, it doesn't right. get performed as much. Uh, and yeah. you know, that's, that fits that what you're describing is, is that, you know, we categorize and over categorize to a certain extent of, of how we understand things. 
Yeah. And well, speaking for myself, I know that you, you have a different audience for every different project. I mean, when I'm writing stuff for TV, the audience is really the show itself. How does the music serve the program, the story, the characters? And I write very differently. Um, and I'm there to serve that process. Um, having concert music under those circumstances would be really inappropriate because that's not what the music is meant to do. So I think it's important to be aware why we're uh, doing something. You know, for whom are you performing? Are you performing for the agent that you're hoping is going to see you? Um, if you're an actor, are you performing for the children in the audience so that you can um, entertain them? Or are you performing for the adults because they'll get the jokes? You know, mm -hmm. they'll get some of the more adult jokes. Um, being aware of who your audience is is, is important. Um, speaking for myself, that's what I try to identify first when I write a new piece of music. Um, I just finished something for English horn and piano. And I thought to myself, I have these two instruments. And primarily in the past, I've heard the soloist be given sort of the, the featured part. But I thought, I don't want the pianist to be ignored. So in this piece, I'm going to have a middle section that's just solo piano. Mm. Um, and so that's my twist on something. But that's also because it was something that I wanted to write for fun. Um, mm -hmm. If I were writing, well, I'm right now working on a couple of projects and the purpose is to serve the ensemble, um, to make them, to feature them and what they're doing in their story. So I can empathize mm -hmm. with what uh, the other composers are saying. It's it's always important to know um, the meaning of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, if there's anything you could change about the music industry, particularly the, the concert music, classical music industry, um, it, do you have anything you would change and what would it be? Yeah, I would love for, just generally speaking, I would love there to be a greater amount of musical awareness and education uh in the in the general public um mm -hmm. we all know that music programs are being cut but i think in many ways the general public isn't even aware what musicians do mm -hmm. uh, because they don't see the process they're perhaps aware of uh the orchestra or the band or and they certainly know about pop music but the daily struggles that we have as small muscle athletes, um, mm -hmm. as performers, uh, the amount of training that goes involved, um, I'm not entirely satisfied with the public awareness of the, the struggles and the process. Um, mm -hmm. So I would love for that to happen. Um, in terms of the industry itself, um, I look forward to the day when streaming uh, provides much more of a financial 
um, like income stream. Yeah, I, I, I would love for that aspect to be more substantive mm-hmm. for creatives. Yeah, of um, course. Because we certainly have the the infrastructure, and now we just need to set things up so that it's um, more rewarding for the artists and mm-hmm. for the uh, musicians. So they're not making, you know, half a penny per stream or something like that, you know, something actually substantial that they could use. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I, I'm not part of that process and I don't know what the inner workings are, but um, I know that if the music community feels a certain way, then it's something that should be addressed and hopefully sooner mm-hmm. the better. Absolutely. Well, that concludes the uh, heavy portion of the podcast. And I get to bring oh. you to the fun stuff again. Yes. I need, see, I need a jingle for the end of that too. Um, <laughs> so we're going to so, talk about bread now, right? Yeah, oh, always. <laughs> I can talk about bread for hours. I have to say, I was one of the people who had yeast when the uh, pandemic first hit because I had been break, baking bread before it hit. And so oh. I, my friends came to me and I was distributing little jars of yeast to my friends who couldn't get it in the grocery stores because wow. everyone suddenly wanted to make bread. You know, so there was, <laughs> that's, that's my very fun little cool. bread. Fun fact for the day. Um, that's, that's very cool. <laughs> oh, it was it was an interesting time. But um, so here's one that I love to ask: Who is your favorite composer besides yourself? Although you can be an answer, of course, if you'd like. Jeez, <laughs> uh, I don't have a favorite composer, but um, there have been so there have been so many over the years that have that have produced works that have influenced me. And they're not necessarily all classical composers. Um, When I was in college uh, in New York, I listened to the radio a lot and I started listening to jazz. Um, Mm -hmm. And so there's a whole bunch of um, jazz composers that that produce works that influence me and, and, and groups. But I, I know the point of your uh, question. I'll, I'll answer and say that I'm a, I've always been a huge fan of John Williams. Um, oh, yes. Because of his background, because of his experience, his playing ability, his writing ability. Um, but I love the craft of what he does. Um, mm-hmm. We know all the major themes. The general, see, this is, this is one thing that I wish the general public knew. The, the general public knows all his big movie themes, but a lot of his most brilliant writing, in my opinion, c- lies within the cues that are virtually ignored. Mm-hmm. Um, just the way they're put together. I don't know if you're aware of this, but did you know the film Jaws, right? Oh, of course. It's actually in my top three favorite movies of all time. <laughs> yeah. Did you know that Jaws has a fugue in it? Yes, I did. Right? I, see, I'm, but I'm a rare exception. I wrote an undergraduate thesis on the use of extended techniques of horn in film music. So I talked about Jaws a lot. So, no kidding. Yeah. Yeah. That's a whole different thing. But yes, it does have a fugue and it's incredible. <laughs> it's just a brilliant work. And I just think mm-hmm. to myself, I wish that were performed more often. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the amount of creativity in that score goes far beyond the two note motif. Of and I wish that the public knew that. Um, 
And but he's produced such a large body of work. Uh, there's there's just so many things that I could talk about. But that's what came to mind because that was really the first time that I was aware of of his work as a composer. Here, hearing right. the score to Jaws, um, Star Wars, of course. But um, it's a lot of these subtle cues, uh, the ones that are ignored that I really adore uh, because mm -hmm. he writes in a way that is not heard too often nowadays mm -hmm. for any multiple of reasons um and having met him a couple of times i've found him to be very gracious very humble and just the superstar that you always imagine him to be when you meet somebody of that you know fame level do you fanboy a little bit like i would freak out <laughs> like i would just sit there like my palms yeah i think yeah <laughs> Yeah, I try not to do that, but I don't know that I've always been successful. <laughs> you know, if I can walk away from an interaction like that and not black out, I figure I'm doing okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, yeah, because I'm thinking to myself, I've got 30 years of uh, comments that I want to say, but I don't want to uh, monopolize too much of your time. So, <laughs> right. so I'll just babble for a while. <laughs> love that oh that's so great and you know it's nice to know that a six-time emmy award-winning composer will also get nervous when meeting other people of the big name that's exciting yeah. so that makes me feel a little better oh my gosh <laughs> now when you're not doing music what do you do for fun what is your your outside music hobby activity of choice? you know i wish i wish this wasn't the case but um i really <laughs> like watching as i said earlier restoration videos there's so much mm -hmm cool stuff on YouTube. Um, so much great uh, content. And I'll spend a lot of time uh, listening to podcasts like yours and <laughs> listening to interviews with uh, artists or actors um, just to learn something new. Uh, when I was in college, as I mentioned earlier, I, I used to watch Sesame Street and they would have these huge celebrities on that program. And it just, I just thought it was so cool. Um, you got to see them introduce their work to a different artist. Uh, I mean, a different age group, uh, mm -hmm. a different audience. Um, but because I like, you know, because I have all of these different interests and uh, electronics, including uh, one of them, I, I'll go back and I'll watch uh some brilliant engineer designed something um, or some re remarkable machinist build this amazing piece of art from metal, you know, mm -hmm. um, I just, or even woodworking. Um, so I, I watch a lot of stuff like that. Um, mm -hmm. It saves me the process from having to invest in the equipment and learn the techniques <laughs> myself i can just simply enjoy their their genius at the end of the video oh yes the number of times i've gone oh i could do that as a as a fun outside thing and then looked at the price tag on this and i'm nope i'm out but thank you congratulations <laughs> on your success goodbye yeah. <laughs> yeah plus i don't know exactly where i would place my cnc machine you know so oh, just you know or your band saw you know if you're gonna go right. working right I'm just sitting in the living room. It's decorative. Right. <laughs> 
Um, well, we've almost come to the end here, Gary. Um, but do you have any upcoming projects or pieces you'd like to share and promote to our listeners here? Well, um, I'd love if uh, people would go to GaryQuo.com, my website, mm-hmm. and that's where I placed um, posted a, a video of that piece for piano and English horn. It's called Ray of Light, um, oh. and it's my very latest piece. Uh, it's only a it's only about uh, four minutes long. Um, but I've got a few other projects that are in the works and I'll be happy to share them, uh, when that time comes. Great. And, um, we'll post links, uh, on the Instagram and so, and Facebook, social media aspects of this as well. So I can direct people to your website and there are definitely YouTube uh, recordings, I think of both of your pieces for horn, um, yes. that people can go and listen to as well. So they 100% should, and then they should program them because they're wonderful. So, oh, <laughs> oh, of course. So I appreciate you so much for coming on today. And I, you're so busy with all these projects. So taking all this time out to come talk to me is, is just phenomenal. So I appreciate it so much. Oh, no, I've been looking forward to it. I'm really glad you reached out and, and invited me. I appreciate that. And congratulations on all your success. And, uh, oh, thank and I'll you. look forward to following your career as well. Great. Thank you so much. All right. And that, that will sign off. Thank you, listeners, for joining us today. And uh, keep on the lookout next week for another exciting episode. Thank you so much. This has been Represent the Podcast. For more episodes, you can find us at Spotify and Apple Podcasts or on my website, www.katiebethmckinney.com. If you liked what you heard today, please rate us five stars or leave a review. Thank you for listening.